I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. I've had such a nice time over the weekend with you. Yeah. Yeah, just relaxing and not having to think about, you know, going to work. That's the one thing I like about my job. I, I don't take it home with me at all. Oh. So what are we going to talk about today, dear? Work stuff. Like office supplies. <laughs> I don't want to go to bed. I don't want to be here. It sucks. I hate it. I think this is my strangest topic ever. Sure, sure. I, You know, I think all the death and stuff I pick is pretty normal. I feel like office supplies is really out there for me. I can't think of any of our usual tags that would apply. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you might be onto something. So, yeah, we're going to visit the history of some commonly used office supplies. <laughs> and we're going to start with a stapler. Great. Love it. I see one right there. Yes, we have one. I think a lot of people have it a stapler. That's not really a brag. Uh, I didn't have one for a long time, actually. I went and bought that one at Target a few years ago because we did not have a stapler. <laughs> and I found out it is much cooler than I ever thought it was, and we will get there. Staplers mm -hmm. came out of... Ancient Greece. No. The, the 19th century okay. saw you know, a growing use of paper for business and industry. Which is what we're going to kind of be the theme of a lot of the things we're talking about is this like growing business and industry. So the Industrial Revolution is the source of all of our office supplies? Kind of. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, that's when really like needing to keep track of like products and, and mass produced things mm -hmm. happened and more paperwork. And in 1866, uh, George McGill got a U.S. patent. Uh, patent number 56587 uh, for a small bendable brass paper fastener, which was the predecessor to the modern staple. We, we still have brass fasteners, but is that the same brass fastener? The, the one that looks kind of like a, a, a nail, but it's you, you bend the legs apart? You're, you're talking about like, is, aren't those called like brands? Or? Maybe. They aren't labeled. <laughs> they are. They, okay. they do, but yeah, no. In the box they are. It doesn't say it on the head. <laughs> no, um, because the following year, he got a patent for the device that would insert it into paper. Okay. So, like, what you're thinking of is, yeah, those little ones that you just do with your fingers. This was, he patented what would eventually be, like, a staple, like the staple you put in a stapler. Mm-hmm. And then the next year, he patented the device that did it well what was he doing for the year in between that seems like a very useless bit of, of metal developing things sure sure you know? i mean you create the thing okay this is what's gonna go in it i better put a patent on this right away oh okay everyone put patents on everything like <laughs> i feel like everyone and their cousin put a patent on something well, most things hadn't been invented yet. It was yeah. the olden days. Yeah, but it's like life insurance. It's like <laughs> crazy. It's like if you put a patent on one thing, you're going to invent 12 more things. Oh, I thought you meant it makes you a murderer. Maybe. 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 Okay. But if you buy life insurance, you're going to murder someone. Na yeah, naturally. You know, yeah. So he showed this invention at mm -hmm. the 1876 Centennial Exhibition in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which was the first... 
official World's Fair in the U.S., uh, celebrating the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Mm-hmm. Probably got mentioned in one of the other times we talked about some World's <laughs> Fair something or other. Um, sure, why not? But its full title was the International Exhibition of Arts, Manufactures, and Products of the Soil and Mine. <laughs> My God. Nothing about... I get why they call it the Centennial Exhibition. Yeah, nothing about independence or, or anything. No, no. But no. we have to talk about farms obliquely. Uh-huh. So after this, uh, he continued to work on it and other different types of paper fasteners for like the next 14, 20 years. Mm -hmm. Like he just kept kind of developing and playing with stuff. And we're going to come back to him. Uh, (laughs) But around this time, other... The godfather of office supplies, George McGill. Yeah. Uh, So around this time, there were other people creating similar fasteners and things like staples. Um, And there were some other patents that were issued for inventors. One in 1868 um, was an English patent to uh, C.H. Gold and a U.S. one to Albert Kletzker um, for like very similar devices. Mm -hmm. And I thought the competitor to Staples was Office Max. (laughs) Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Uh, So in 1877, uh, Henry R. R. Heil uh, filed another patent for the first machine to both insert and and like clench the staple in one step um because the other device didn't like do that (laughs) um and he's kind of considered by many as the inventor of the modern stapler Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. rather than these prehistoric staplers yes and he was also filed some patents for ones that were for like stapling boxes and books more industrial based ones but in 1879 george mcgill our good buddy. Back in action. Uh, Bet you thought I was out of the game. You were wrong. He received a patent for the McGill Single Stroke Press, the first commercially successful stapler. Yeah, I make it look good. I'm the OG <laughs> of staples. It weighed about two and a half pounds, and it could drive a staple through several sheets of paper, um, but it was only loaded with a single staple at a time. All right, that's not going to work. That's not going to do it. I'm sorry, but no, there's room for improvement here. Well, the first uh, version to have a magazine of staples, like we are used to now, didn't come until came existed. Like it had happened, it someone invented it the previous year, but it wasn't like the commercial thing mm-hmm. to have for a long time it was still just kind of having a single one that you put in and you did it and actually i would like to go back to that because then i could get away with doing a lot less work the term stapler Mm -hmm. uh wasn't used until 1901 Mm -hmm. uh it was it was used in an american magazine called munzee uh and that was the first time that like title was attached to these machines it it does sound more like a, a job title or a nickname on like a, a assembly line yeah. than a piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now around this time, um, there were also other devices being used that would like punch and fold paper to attach it to itself. Ooh. Um, that didn't require a metal staple. So there were, was competition. An infinite stapler. Yeah. I guess why maybe one thing took off and like the other version didn't is because there were other options available at the time that 
were probably cheaper because you didn't have to buy a second supply. That's how they get you. Yeah. You're in the pocket of Big McGill now. But the the stapler that we know today didn't come about until 1941. <laughs> uh, the four-way paper stapler. Those uh, leaps and bounds that technology takes during wartime. Yeah. Yeah. The ones we all got, they're, they're considered a four-way paper stapler. And I'm like, okay, so you can, like, staple paper. You can, like, pop it open and staple something to, like, a wall or wood or a box. Mm-hmm. You can, like, I don't know, pinch, like, a bag together or whatever. What are the, what are the four ways? Tell me your well, fourth th- those, way. Those are some of the ways. But then I was like, yeah, what what else? And so I was reading about how, like, well, you know, there's two settings on your stapling plate, or the anvil, as they call it. And, you know, if you change your setting, you have that other way. And I'm like, what? You can change a setting? So the stapling plate is a little thing that looks like uh, a sleepy face. Yes. Uh. <laughs> it's, it's where, when you press it together... The stapling happens. Yeah, in the mouth. And then it's got the closed eyes and a little round nose in between them. Yeah. So you apparently knew about this. Yes, because I fiddle with things. I did not know that you can pop that up and twirl it around and suddenly there's a different way that the staple staples. Yeah, yeah. You just press it up from below to, to spin it around. That that nose is like a little rivet that it rotates around. This blew my freaking mind. <laughs> so if you're like me and had no idea mm-hmm. that that's a thing, how, how does this change your stapler? Well, instead of it stapling inward, it bends the little prongs outward. There's a reason. Oh, like, oh, good. You, like, they weren't just fooling around for the fun of it? So the, the reasoning behind these two settings is that the normal setting that bends the stapler or the staple in creates a really secure hold that's meant to stay. It's mm-hmm. not supposed to be temporary. So when you turn it around and you do it in the way that makes the hook go out, it's a looser hold that is better for removing so if you need something temporarily stapled, you should do it in that way. Or just get a paper clip. Get a, get a paper clip. You, that's the second office supply you need. Uh, yeah. So, like, here you go. You, can, you just need one. Is the four-way paper stapler just trying to put paper clips out of business? Maybe. Okay. But there's, like, terminology for how you're stapling that is, like, historically based. <laughs> There's always jargon. Always. So be- before staplers, people would sew things together or they'd like use like pins, like straight pins. Mm-hmm. And that would be like a temporary like hold, like pin these papers together. They stay together. The The terminology for what way you're using has stuck around from that time. If you're stapling your papers the normal way, you're stapling them together. If you're using the temporary hold, you're pinning them. Uh-huh. Because it's the pin you can take out from back when they still use straight pins. Now, now you tested this setting yesterday. Yes. You did. I did. When, when you're using the, the pin setting, uh-huh. does it just sort of straighten out into a straight pin, more or less? More or less. I okay. mean, yeah. Like so it, you just like pull it out lengthways. Well, no. It no. doesn't like go flat, flat. You still have to pull it from the center, but it comes out a lot easier. Okay. Okay. 
these types of staplers, because of how the little like notches are, like they never lay completely flat. There's mm-hmm. always a little bit of a bend. Right. But you can wiggle it out easier. You're not having to like unbend something okay. to pull it out. You can just kind of wiggle it out. <laughs> yeah, I had spent like 10 minutes fiddling with this yesterday to figure all these settings out. This might be our most researched episode. <laughs> I was fascinated. In terms of practical experiments. I tweeted about this, <laughs> blowing my mind. Stapler technology, though, continues to advance. <laughs> I think I heard that in a PowerPoint once at work. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so now, like, we have ones that, like, fold the staple so it goes, like, really, really flat. Mm -hmm. And the whole point behind that is so the papers lay flatter in, like, your your filing cabinet and stuff, and you can fit more. Yes. Instead of having to stagger your staples and different parts of the page. Or just have it, like, be kind of, like, really fat on one side. Yeah, I hate that. You know, someone decided that's a problem and I got to, yeah. All right, great. You know, and also all the ones that are like less effort required Mm -hmm. that are almost magical to use where you just kind of touch it and it does it. (laughs) Um, I don't trust those. (laughs) You don't trust those? No. Well, if you're curious, the patent for the modern stapler remover that we know did, did not come about until 1932. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was by uh, William William G. Penconan of Chicago. So the staple remover uh-huh. is older than the, the modern, modern staple. But it existed quite a long time after the, staplers the became like stapler. <laughs> commercially successful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Early generation staplers. And and I don't I don't know if you know, but it is recognized that depending on the way you remove your stapler there is like the the safe way and the quick way Uh uh-huh yes is the safe way to pinch the bent ends first Uh and then come around to pull out from this yes yeah because you you will not damage your paper as much Mm -hmm. or if you go the quick way which is from the, the the i guess the top typically yeah it will probably rip your paper that is like a, a recognized thing in the staple remover world. I recognize it. <laughs> I recognize that. It, it is recognized. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so now we're going to talk about post-it notes. Okay. I know all about the invention of post-it notes. You do? Because I've seen Romy and Michelle's high school reunion. Okay. <laughs> I have not, so I can't say whether it's factually accurate. Okay. Let's Probably find not. out. Inventor, researcher. Dude named uh, Spencer Silver. Man about town, ballroom dancer. (laughs) He he worked for 3M. Food truck impresario. uh, At their research research laboratories in uh, 1968. And he was uh, working on trying to find a strong adhesive. Mm -hmm. But that didn't happen. Uh, (laughs) He ended up developing something that was not strong. Because he's bad at his job. Instead, it was the weakest adhesive they had ever had. Spencer Silver... (laughs) Immediately fired. Village idiot Spencer Silver. <laughs> it was it was low tack. It was reusable. It was pre- pressure sensitive, and he was like, "Okay, this is really cool, but what do we use this for? <laughs> I have a solution without a problem. I don't know what to do." It just kind of sat around with them waiting, like to figure out what to do with it. And in 1974, another 3M worker, Arthur Fry. He, he he sang in the church choir often, mm-hmm. and he would, like, put... I would assume weekly. I don't pretend to know what his church does. All right. 
Uh, but he would, you know, put like bookmarks and all that in his book to know what songs to turn to. Mm-hmm. But they would always fall out. Oh. And this this led to him being like, well, hey, there's this like adhesive. I wonder if I put it on my bookmarks if that would help. And he tried it and it worked. So he utilized 3M's official sanctioned permitted bootlegging policy to develop this. Mm-hmm. Uh, he could take it and do what he wanted with it. So he used uh, scrap paper they had and put the adhesive on it. Uh, and that scrap paper just happened to be yellow, like the color we all know post-it notes to often be. Canary yellow in <laughs> yeah. their uh, uh, catalog. Yeah. Well. I was not joking about this being my job. <laughs> <laughs> and created this, this product. Mm-hmm. So they launched... Uh, them as press and peel bookmarks in 1977 mm-hmm. to a few stores and no one bought them. It didn't <laughs> go well. So then they're like, okay, we have this thing. We think it will be good. What do we do? Why don't we just give out a lot of free samples? Let's just give them out mm-hmm. and see what people think and see if people like them. People liked them. <laughs> And people were like, you know, this is pretty cool. I'd buy this. Yeah. So in 1979, post-it notes came. Yay. Hooray. Now, there's controversy. Mm -hmm. Of course. Well, yeah. Because office supplies. Everyone knows that either Romy or Michelle, I didn't watch it very closely, (laughs) invented post-it notes. Yeah. Yes. Well, actually. Gretchen Wiener's dad invented Toaster Strudel. Don't get those two movies confused. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And one of our listeners' dads invented uh, Cool Ranch Doritos. Yeah. 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 That one's real. That one is real. <laughs> uh, so inventor Alan Amron made claims to be the inventor. He said that he had disclosed to 3M the idea and the usage of post-it notes, mm-hmm. of using this adhesive, of, of putting it on paper, and the whole development of this idea around the time that they were... They created post-it notes. <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, in 1997, he sued them, and they settled, and they paid him. And then in uh, 2016, he sued again, saying mm-hmm. that they were wrongly claiming to be the inventors and seeking $400 million in damages. But that suit was dismissed, and they said that the previous settlement was still upheld. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2016, another former 3M marketing employee came forward as, like, an eyewitness and said that, yes, in 1974, he, he did disclose the idea of the memo sticky notes to 3M, and he is the inventor. Uh-huh. There's, there's controversy, though. On, Always. And who is the real inventor of those things we use a lot of? Yeah. I'm I go through a lot of them. I'm using one as a coaster right now. Yes, you are. <laughs> Even though we have coasters. Yeah, they were far away. So now we're going to talk about liquid paper, or mistake out. It's the hardest paper to write on. Yeah. Well, it's easier once it dries. Yeah. I think we have some of this in my office. Yeah. I don't know if anyone actually Nobody uses it. Nobody uses this anymore. It's so, so... Because we type everything. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's really obsolete. obsolete. It, it's, it's something that still exists. But 98% of people are not using it. <laughs> but it's kind of cool. It was something that was very, it was, it was pretty groundbreaking at the time. This was invented by Betty Nesmith Graham. She 
married um, a man by the name of Warren Nesmith before he left for World War II. And while he was gone, she had a son. When he returned home, they divorced shortly after. So then she was having to support herself and her child and went to work as a secretary at Texas Bank and Trust, eventually moving up to the highest position available to women at the time, which was executive secretary. The best at secretarying. So she also made extra money by like painting the bank windows uh, for holidays <laughs> as well. And so this like paint a Santa Claus yeah, on there. And like and, snowscapes yeah. and Easter bunnies and whatnot. So apparently that connection led to her idea for this invention. <laughs> so since she worked as a secretary, she, you know, used a typewriter a lot. And you can't really like erase mistakes on a typewriter. It's there. You either got to mm-hmm. start over, or, like exit out, or could try erasing it, but then the paper's all messed up, you know? She started to, like, realize, well, when I, like, paint the window, if I make a mistake, I don't erase it. I just paint over it. I just mm-hmm. keep adding paint. She got the idea that perhaps she could do something with this for her her job. So she went home and put some put some tempera water-based uh, paint in a blender along with some other stuff and was like, Mysterious okay, secret ingredients. And was like, okay, I'm going to try this out. She put it in like a little nail polish bottle and took a couple watercolor brushes to work mm-hmm. and secretly used it for a while to kind of cover up mistakes she made and then rework over them. Now, eventually her her co-workers started to like hear about it and ask <laughs> for their own. Betty's reports are all flawless. By uh, 1956, she was calling it Mistake Out and selling it in small nail polish bottles to other workers, not only at the bank, but other, like, their friends at other offices. Mm -hmm. And by the 1960s, she had a business. Uh, At first, it was operating with a small loss based out of her house. Um, you know, she would, she would take all calls related to it over her house phone and would say like, (laughs) oh yes, we're working on this in the lab, which was her kitchen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but she would speak about it as though it was like a large corporation at that time. This is definitely an Amazon original (laughs) TV series waiting to happen. It is. Perhaps a, a subplot intersecting with the marvelous Ms. Maisel. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, soon it became, the word spread, and it was becoming a major tool in offices, and she first relocated her, like, production and shipping um, from her kitchen to a metal structure in her backyard, and then to a whole (laughs) house, and then later they had their own headquarters. Hooray! Um, And she was a big believer that women could bring more to a male dominated business world yeah um one nail polish bottle at a time (laughs) well she she thought there was more of like a nurturing and humanistic quality that businesses could have with their employees Mm -hmm. her like their company headquarters um in 1975 had extra amenities it had an employee library it had a child care center it had a lot of things to encourage people to work there Especially women. Mm -hmm. So she had remarried in 1962. 
Um, but in 1972, they divorced, and her ex during that time had become involved in the company and was, after the divorce, working to ha- have it be so she had no say whatsoever or involvement. <laughs> but she was able to gain back control of the company, and mm-hmm. once she did, she sold it. <laughs> she's like, you jerk. I'm going to get my money before this all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So in 1979, she sold uh, her product, which she was now calling li- liquid paper, to the Gillette Corporation for $47.5 million. But I heard that Gillette was the best a man can get. Well. Wait a minute. And around this time, she had had 200 employees, and they were making 25 million bottles a year. That's a big kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, She unfortunately died the next year from a stroke. Her only son was Michael Nesmith, who was a member of the Monkees. And he received half of her money, and the other half went into the foundation she had started, one of which gave grants and financial support to promote women in the arts and the other to do the same for women in business. And he continued to work and support those foundations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, a fun fact, the, the product came under scrutiny in the 1980s over concerns of recreational sniffing <laughs> because of uh, one of the ingredients. They no longer put that ingredient in it, just okay. so you know. <laughs> Only in Coca-Cola, no longer in liquid paper. Okay. Different ingredient, <laughs> but, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about copies. We're, we're making copies? Yeah. Okay. Back in the days, mm-hmm. if you wanted copies of something. You paid someone a living wage, like Bob Cratchit. Yeah. Or Bartleby, the scrivener. Yeah, you, you, you did have to make people, you know, <laughs> write it down. Or, like, there were or, printing presses. Or medieval monks. Uh, a big thing was carbon paper. Ah, uh, okay. That was how you made copies if you were, like, originating the document. Mm-hmm. Um, that was invented in 1801 by uh, Pellegrino Turri. Uh, he was an Intel- Italian inventor, and and he did this to provide the ink for his mechanical typing machine, which was in one of the first earliest typing like typewriters that existed. So in, instead of like writing on the, the carbon paper to like have another thing beneath it, you just like put a strip in and uh-huh. then it hits the thing. And it... Right, ra- rather than the typewriter ribbon. Yes. Just like a, a sheet. Yes. Okay. So then uh, Ralph Wedgwood, uh, he obtained the first patent for carbon paper in uh, 1806. And for a long time, that was, like, the way you made multiple copies of something. In the, like, 1930s, mm-hmm. uh, Chester Carlton, who was a patent attorney in New York, in his job, he had to make copies of documents all the time. And all it was these all- people inventing things, yeah. giving them so much business to take care and of. It, it was a long process. Submitting and- your documents in triplicate and whatnot. So he he tra- started playing around with how can I cr- fix this? Uh, he <laughs> he he wanted to have photocopies. How can it be copied? So in his kitchen, there's a theme here. Uh, he worked on electrophotography. Mm-hmm. which is now known as xerography. His invention combined electrostatic printing with photography 
and it required like several manual processes to make it happen. There was mm-hmm. like a zinc a zinc plate covered in sulfur and he had like So so we're going to summon Bahamut to yeah. make our copies. Yeah. I see. And you had to like write your message on a microscopic slide and and you placed it and there was more sulfur and then a bright <laughs> light and then a mirror image would be made and it would be great. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know how this made his job easier. <laughs> well, once you learn all the incantations in the original, like, ancient Mesopotamian, yeah. it goes a lot faster. Yeah. So he he tried to, like, sell this. He got a patent in between 1939 and, yeah, I know, he did got he, a patent maybe from himself. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Did he use it to do his own patent uh, uh, paperwork? I don't know. That's actually a great question. But he tried to sell it between 1939 and 1944 to, like, a couple dozen companies. And they were all like, no. (laughs) Carbon paper's great. This seems really complicated. It's so manually intense. People are going to spend their whole day just staring at this machine, wondering why it doesn't do anything. Yeah. And some things never change. (laughs) My God. I sit in my office right by our production room mm-hmm. and the amount of people who come out of there like i don't know it's not working <laughs> and you know what it usually is it's out of paper <laughs> yeah yeah in 1944 battelle memorial institute uh contacted him uh they wanted to work on developing his process mm-hmm. and they spent five years working on it simplifying expanding etc mm-hmm. then in 1947 Hayloid Corporation approached uh, Battelle to get a license to develop and market a copying machine using that technology. And this is where uh, that name change I talked about earlier mm-hmm. um, from his, what was it, ele- electric, electrophotography. Mm-hmm. Like, this is where that went away. <laughs> uh, and they changed it. And they changed it to xerography, um, which is derived from... Greek words meaning dry writing. (laughs) And they called their machine the Xerox machine. And it was uh, first introduced in 1949. So that just means the the dry machine? Yeah. The the very dry machine. Yeah. Please do not get your Xerox machine wet. Do not feed it after midnight. Yeah. Without charging a lot for overtime. You have rights. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the the history and development of your copy machine at work changed a lot from that time. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff with, like, the ink process mm-hmm, and what it mm-hmm. uses. I don't want to be here all day. Laser about printing. That. Yes. Yes. Um, but that is when we got, like, the first machine like what we are familiar with today, you could mm-hmm, say. Mm-hmm. And a good time to remind our listeners, because I think we talked about this in another episode, Xerox is the brand. Not what the machine is. <laughs> well, no, but it's it is... obviously an electrophotography unit. Yeah. Obviously. Obviously. But, um, you know, it's, it's Xerox is such a common term, especially for a long time. I feel like now people use, like, copier. I'm going to go to the copier much more. The, the MFD. Is that what yours is? Uh, a, a multifunction device. Oh, yeah, we don't use that. Oh, okay. It's a copier. But, you know, for, for many decades, like, Xerox machine, or I gotta go Xerox this, no matter what brand it was. Mm-hmm. Now I feel like we've moved successfully away from that, and people are like the copier. So take that, Haloid Corporation. <laughs> Your stranglehold on the market share has been been rocked. Yeah. 
Uh, so we have one more office supply to talk about. Uh, and that's paper clips. Oh, the little fella. The little fella. The foundation of them all. This the simplest uh, supply there is impossible to improve upon. Well, people really spent a lot of time working on that. <laughs> My good friend Clippy, who knows when I'm trying to write a letter. <laughs> the first patent for a paperclip device mm-hmm. uh, was in the U.S. to Samuel B. Fay uh, in 1867. His intention, though, was for it to attach tickets to fabric. Though he said it could probably use, be used for other stuff, too. <laughs> um, and it was functional, but he and about 50 other people had designs going on probably until about 1899 that were being used here and there. None of them really took off, and none of them are considered similar to the modern paperclip we know now. <laughs> it's like the Cambrian explosion. Mm-hmm. All, all these bizarre, wonderful forms of life, mm-hmm. and none of them survived or have any uh, recognizable influence yeah. on species today. Uh, the, one, the one that does mm-hmm. is the paperclip we know now. The design is called the gem paperclip. That the paperclips we use, the typical ones, are gem designs. Uh-huh. Um, Don't look like it. <laughs> um, so that version was was not patented, but was most likely in production in Britain in the early 1870s by a company called the Gem Manufacturing Company. Uh, okay, there you go. Now, it gets a little, like, confusing, I feel like, of, like... <laughs> How confusing the a paperclip well, thing! Well, so, like, in 1883, there was an article that, like, talked about the gem paper fasteners being the best, better than ever, the better than any other type of one that existed, but there was no illustration included in that article, so for, like, historians looking at paperclips, it could have looked different... Mm-hmm. than what we use, but they think it is that design. I would love to meet these historians working on paper clips while we're at it. Okay, so in 1904, Cushman and Dennison uh, registered a trademark for a gem design paper clip, uh, and they claimed they had been using this design since 1892. Mm-hmm. It's a little confusing on, like, Okay, same thing, multiple companies all making the same thing. What's going on? Mm-hmm. This paperclip existed. The I'm, one we know, lots going on. I'm just upset at these people for registering a trademark of what was an unpatented design. Information wants to be free. This is an open source <laughs> paperclip. It's modern yeah. marvel. So I guess in some other countries, gem or gem clips is actually the name for paperclips. Whoa. Yeah. But anyways... In, in 1899, um, a patent was granted to William Middlebrook in uh, Connecticut for a machine to make a wire paper clip. The drawing shows the gem design. Okay, that, that's what it was intended to make. Yes, this patented was. machine. So we know, like, there's all these things that say, okay, this paper clip existed, and this is this one, and all these connections. Mm-hmm. The, we finally have a picture. Yes. Well, the or and the origin of it's you know a little a little funky. That's what we're getting mm-hmm. at here. So it's hard to know exactly like where we th- they think it's this, but then these people were talking about it. But it definitely existed by this point. <laughs> uh, and the thing is, is we had the picture, but the guy never talked about like the gem paperclip. Mm-hmm. And again, 
historians are like, well, the fact that he didn't mention it leads us to think that it was very common. So he didn't need to explain what it was in words. We could just look at it and know what it was. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 And it was, it was that common in use at that point. Let's make this more confusing. Uh, Herbert Spencer who was an English philosopher, biologist, sociologist. He, he's known for the expression of survival of the fittest. Mm-hmm. Uh, in his autobiography, he claimed that he invented the binding clip, which like was a similar design to the paper clip. And like, this was, he was involved in this. Yeah. He would say that <laughs> because it is the paper clip that beat out all the others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Survival of the, the bentist. And if we just want to make it even more complicated, Norwegian Johan Valer was born in 1866 and died in 1910, uh, has wrongly been identified as the inventor by many. (laughs) Well, that's actually alleviating confusion. Um, That's one person we don't have to pay attention to. Well, his story is pretty interesting. (laughs) Uh, He got a patent in Germany and the U.S. for a paperclip that was similar, mm-hmm. but not as good. So, like, paperclip, we know, like, it, it, you know how it, like, I'm doing it with my finger. No one can see this. It bends but it, three times. Yeah. His, his had one less bend. Okay. So it didn't, like, hold as well. It didn't work as well. His version was never manufactured or marketed because the gem version already existed and it was better. <laughs> But long after his death, a national, like, myth arose based on the false assumption that this unrecognized Norwegian invented the paperclip. A national myth of Norway, then. Yes. How did this happen? Well, <laughs> well, the Norwegians are star for attention, famously. <laughs> An engineer of the Norwegian National Patent Agency... Uh, went to Germany in the 1920s to register Norwegian patents in that country, in Germany. And he came across Valer's um, patent, but didn't realize that it was not the same as the gem paperclip. Mm. Like, he didn't realize the, like, design difference. So he wrote an article which proclaimed that this dude was the inventor of the common paperclip. And after World War II... This made it into a lot of encyclopedias. (laughs) And a lot of people were saying, yeah, this dude invented paperclips. He was the one. And what led to, like, building this idea even more is that during the war, people would sometimes wear paperclips as a, like, symbol of resistance, apparently, (laughs) including in, like, Norway. I guess it was... I guess especially in Norway. Well, yeah. So it was apparently meant to, like... For solidarity and, you know, unity, we're bound together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was quickly, like, prohibited. You're, you're showing something, like, stating you're against us. You can't do that. You're, you're not allowed to show Norwegian national pride when you're busy being occupied yes. by the Axis powers. They don't like that very much. Yes. So after the war, a lot of, like, facts and things got condensed and combined. And a lot of people writing about different things overlooked the fact that, you know, his paperclip design was different. <laughs> that Norway didn't like... They weren't the only ones doing this with paperclips. Like, showing is a sign of resistance. There's something that says, like, that people in France were doing it mm-hmm. over here. There's some people who also question, like, 
was it really a movement of any sort of people doing this? I don't I question whether that's even just like manipulated out of history. Well, two years ago, you could go to a lot of Etsy stores and get like really fancy paper clips. Yeah. Or no, that was safety pins. Safety Never mind. pins, yes. That was dumb. Can we all admit that was dumb now? So the story got like, you know, woven together and blown up. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, well. You know, he invented it, and they're all using this Norwegian invention to show, you know, their their feelings. When really, like, eh, he didn't invent, he invented one, he didn't invent that. And <laughs> But even so, in 1989, a giant paperclip that was 23 feet high was erected in Oslo mm-hmm. uh, in honor of him. Mm-hmm. But it shows a gem-type paperclip and not the style he invented. (laughs) (laughs) There's also apparently a postage stamp that came out in 1999 to honor him that also shows a gem paperclip and not what he invented. A paperclip's a paperclip. Come on. But he did not invent that style. (laughs) So it's really, like, crazy that -hmm. there's all this stuff out there that states, like, no, he didn't do it. <laughs> but they're still putting up statues. Well, and that's that's the weird, weird history of the paperclip. They'll just have to be satisfied with the fact that Santa Claus lives there. That, <laughs> yeah. That'd be enough for me. Is it Santa Claus lives in Norway? Obviously. Yeah. That the most ups- like random things in your life can have some history. The stapler thing blew my mind. <laughs> but also, like, who knew that there's such a confusion over a paperclip and who invented it, and people are still in disagreement to this day. Mm-hmm. Everything comes from somewhere. There, There mm-hmm. is everything but, you know, the tide and the sunshine and the trees. Like, everything has a start. Yes. And there is a time before it and then and there is a time when it is contentious. And imagine if uh the the twenty-eighth or whatever corporation hadn't picked up this incredibly complicated photocopy process. Yeah. What would business look like today? Or or what if Or if a lady in her kitchen wasn't desperate to find something to help her with her job <laughs> yeah yeah and start playing around with some paint but 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 never mind like the the counterfactuals but just the the illustration of how important uh, at different times uh the lone inventor is compared to uh people who would come up with ideas and either sell them to 3m or they were already employed by 3M, and so they have no legal claim to their ideas, but they, they get occasional credit. Yeah. Uh, d- depending on who you come down on in, in that lawsuit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> kind of sitting here when I was trying to write it like, okay, what office supply do I want to look up next? <laughs> and let me tell you, some of them don't have any story. Some of them are just boring. <laughs> Rulers are probably boring. Yeah. The only story there is where do inches come from? I looked up binder clips and I was like, you know what? I don't need to talk about this. <laughs> <laughs> also, glue sticks. Thought it'd be really interesting. It was just a dude looking at a woman put on lipstick and be like, hey, you know what? I could put glue in that. And That's then about sh- it. <laughs> and that'd shut her trap. Ay, oh, ay, I'm old and misogynist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
But yeah, open up your desk drawer, look in there, and there's like people's lives behind everything. Yeah. Lots of lawsuits. (laughs) Those two. (laughs) So we're going to be back after a quick break with so many letters. So many letters. Well, that episode moved along at a good clip. Mm-hmm. And now we're going to staple on this bit to the end. Okay. So people have sent us some lovely emails and we'd like to uh, copy that content uh, on and, and forward it to you. Do you want to read the first letter, darling? Sure. Our first letter okay. comes from Claritic and she'd like to, to do both of our, our most recent prompts, which sort of go hand in hand. Yeah. Favorite thing about 2018 and something you're looking forward to in the year to come. So, over the past calendar year, Claritic has legally changed her name and gender identity. Congratulations. Uh, And also stood up sort of semi-accidentally into some important roles within her local queer community and also her her, uh, online RPG circles. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, both of those have been working out uh, fantastically, which is great news to hear including uh, a speech she gave at a campaign launch uh, following was apparently a very hard act to follow, a very popular and well-regarded politician, but she uh, brought the house down. Apparently jokes. Jokes, people like them. Yeah, that's the key. So for the next year, she's looking forward to to continuing to try her hand at... uh, uh, stand-up comedy, because, you know, the the last two happy accidents worked out well. Hey. What's the worst that could happen? So do it. Go got for it. it. We believe in you. Absolutely. Thanks for writing, Claire Dick. Uh, Sam writes in, uh, as for 2019 stuff, it's already covered. Uh, sister's upcoming baby due in May. Yeah. And fitness things going well. But Sam said that if they keep at it, they're going to be rocking a six-pack by summer. <laughs> uh, also, Sun's out, guns out, Sam. <laughs> yeah. Sam will also be starting a new job in February, which is very exciting, and has been really involved with a lot of theater projects and a lot of upcoming yeah. theater projects over the next few months, which sounds awesome. It sounds like you're going to be very busy, but <laughs> doing a lot of great things. Happy busy. Yeah. yeah. So thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam. Joe wrote in again and doesn't really have any idea of any upcoming excitement, but they are keeping their mind open to to hopefully good things. And that's optimism. Yeah. It's it's a nice thing to have. Yeah. Bruce also uh, writes in for the first time in a a good long time uh, to to share in these year-end and New Year festivities. Unfortunately, they lost uh, uh, their job at, at Toys R Us as that company folded over 2018. Uh, but they landed on their feet uh, with a, a new job that's closer, with better hours and better pay. So that's great. Uh, uh, all's well that ends well, I suppose. <laughs> and they're also looking forward to uh, an upcoming Disney World vacation with family, and that's oh, fantastic. Yeah. Jealous. Jealous. Thanks, Fris. Uh, Alex and Faye write in and share some very cute cat pictures. Aw, Freddy. Yeah. And 2018 was a very busy year for them. They they got to see the, some musical acts that they 
really enjoyed, including some that don't tour a lot. They squeezed in a bunch of performances at their favorite local theater company. Mm-hmm. Uh, caught the 30th anniversary show of Whose Line Is It Anyway? And they also got married. Married. Way to bury the lead there. Um, and as for 2019, they're going to go on their honeymoon. Oh, that's so, nice. That's sweet. Yeah. That's a smart way to do it. What, the next year? Not necessarily the next year, but have a nice gap of time. That's what we did, too. Exactly. (laughs) That's why I'm in support. I don't suggest anyone go on their honeymoon immediately after their wedding. Because then you're planning two things and stressing about two big plans simultaneously. I suggest waiting at least a couple months. (laughs) It's the best way to deal with it. Yeah. I but mean, a year is also a good idea, too, because then you have a whole year to plan your trip. That's true. After. Maybe like a, a little staycation, like take some time off after your wedding and just like chill. Yeah. That's cool. But like a whole to Like an do? actual like trip. Uh, yeah. Uh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In my opinion. Yes. People, you do what you want. But <laughs> congratulations and I, I hope you have a great time. Yeah. Thanks, Alex and Faye. Uh, and Final Gamer wrote in, also sharing some cat pictures of George and Frederick. Aww. Very cute. So for 2019, uh, they are very excited for the All Under One Banner March that's going to be happening in Glasgow in May. Uh, it is a pro-independence group welcoming any supporters for an independent Scotland. And they also, uh, looking back on 2018, feel very lucky to be a part of the Edinburgh Edinburgh March, uh, where a record-breaking 80,000 people came together for what is now known as one of the largest, if not the largest, peaceful political demonstrations ever in British history. That, uh, yes, in cat pictures. So, (laughs) I forgot. (laughs) I already talked about those. Yeah, but they're good. They're, yes. It bears repeating. Yes. So, thank you, Final Gamer. Thank you. And thanks to everybody for writing in. If you would like to send us a little bit of a message, where can those go, dear? Those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. And we want to hear your your show suggestions. We we got one from Merce. Actually, I forgot to mention. Yeah. Uh, Your questions, comments, corrections. uh, And, of course... As, as most folks do, uh, responses to our regular prompts. Yes. And Darlin, do you have a prompt for us? I would like to hear everyone's favorite extinct creature. This is going to be sad one, isn't it? Is it a plant? Is it an animal? Is it from millions upon millions of years back in the fossil record? Is it something that human beings had contact with? Let me know. Am I going to cry during that one? I don't know. You're going to make me sad about, like, I don't know, Brazilian birds (laughs) or something. Uh, I'm just sad that Rio's not a very good movie. That's that's the saddest thing about Brazilian birds that comes to mind. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, what a waste of talent. I haven't seen that. That's not fair. I didn't even see all of Romy and Michelle. I'm full of lies. I'm (laughs) full of lies. lies. But... All those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. While you're out there, we'd love to also hear you on social media. Check us out on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at History Honeys. You can also give us a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast listening place you partake in. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing about the Instagram, something new oh. that just went up there recently. Yes. Uh, we went to the Antarctic Dinosaurs exhibit, uh, the recently closed exhibit at the Field Museum. Yes. Uh, and noticed 
something that made me wish we went a lot earlier. Yeah. Uh, if you recall our October uh, Antarctic Spookums episode, yes. we, we talked about some of the early and, and sadly doomed uh, missions, uh, expeditions into uh, Antarctica and, and discovering the South Pole itself. And they had... Uh, not only artifacts from the expeditions themselves, like their mm-hmm. their tools and gear, but fossils and other artifacts that they had discovered on those expeditions that were then found with their dead bodies by yep. future yep. explorers. So uh, I snapped a couple pictures of mm-hmm. uh, that stuff. If you'd like to see it, you can see it on Instagram. Yeah, that's where you find those pictures. Yeah. yeah. And while we're plugging things, uh, this is something that I already shared on Twitter. See, you, you do the social media, you, you, you're ahead of the game. Yeah. But I was speaking earlier about how, you know, an episode like this reminds us that uh, uh, everything we take for granted started somewhere. And it came from something and there was a time before it. Yes. Uh, which is sort of the the mission statement of a PBS Digital Studios program called Origin of Everything. And they, they have weekly, less than 10-minute history episodes about the origin of something. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they'll they'll talk about paperclips soon, and, and you'll be ahead of the game there, too. But they're, they're really interesting, and I do recommend them. Yeah. Well, and just as a reminder, in addition to giving us a rating or review... You can also tell your friends. Tell those friends. Tell your coworkers. Tell strangers. Tell everyone to listen to our show. Go up to your dearest loved ones and, and in hushed tones say, There's something there's something that's been on my mind lately and you, you should sit down for this. I, I really want to tell you. And they're going to have this really concerned look on your face. Mm-hmm. And then you put your hand out on top of theirs and you make eye contact and you say, you should listen to History Honeys. Yeah. It's a it's a very entertaining podcast. This past episode, they talked about paper clips. <laughs> and then they'll be so confused and intrigued, they have to listen. They just have to. They have to. But in any case, that is all of our business concluded, all of our information shared, all of our gratitude uh, uh, expressed. Yep. So I'm Grant. I'm Elena. And history's better with with your your honey. honey.